Welcome to this edition of Community Matters Podcast, where we discuss issues important to managing and governing condos, cooperatives, and homeowner associations. My name is Tony Campisi, Executive Director of Community Associations Institute's Pennsylvania and Delaware Valley Chapter. Community associations have all sorts of liability, so avoiding claims and lawsuits is always an important topic. Today my guest is Ed Hoffman, Esquire, with the law firm of Barrow Hoffman, and we'll be talking about all the issues regarding claims and liability for community associations in this episode of Community Matters Podcast. Ed Hoffman is a partner and co-founder of Barrow Hoffman, a community association law firm with offices in Warminster and Allentown, Pennsylvania. Mr. Hoffman regularly represents and counsels homeowners associations, condominiums, and planned communities on a full range of issues, including litigation, governing document, drafting, amendments and revisions, transition issues, covenant enforcement, assessment violations, and collections. He is a member of CAI's Pennsylvania Legislative Action Committee and the CAI Pennsylvania Delaware Valley Poconos Regional Council. A graduate of Temple University with a BA, California State University with an MS, and Temple University School of Law, Mr. Hoffman is licensed to practice law in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Welcome, Ed, and thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Before we start, I'd like to recognize the sponsor of this podcast episode, FWH Associates. Since 1989, FWH Associates has provided clients in New Jersey, New York, and Pennsylvania with the highest level of expertise in in engineering, surveying, planning, landscape architecture, capital reserve planning, and inspection services. FWH Associates delivers innovative solutions for residential and commercial projects from initial investigations to full-scale design and execution. Find out more at www.fwhassociates.com. So Ed, associations manage and care for a lot of land and common areas. Tell me, what can they do to avoid premises liability claims? Well, Tony, I would start with saying this is all about risk avoidance and managing risk. Uh, And that's what we're going to talk about today. So with respect to premises liability specifically, it's one of the places that you actually, for lack of a better word, can see a problem. So what can an association do with respect to a premises liability claim? Uh, It's proactive risk management. So associations need to be proactive and manage the risk. And to do that, there's a few things that we generally would recommend, um, given our background as insurance defense lawyers. Uh, doing association defense uh, for general liability claims as well as DNO claims, uh, but in this sense, it would be a general liability issue. So, one thing the association can do is ask its general liability insurance carrier to perform a risk management assessment in order to provide recommendations to the association on suggested risk minimization techniques. And what that means is they literally come out and do a property inspection. And typically when, uh, when, the, when a policy is written, when a GL policy is written to begin with, they'll come out and do a property inspection anyway. But over time, uh, th- things happen. And this is one thing that the association can do to try to be proactive on risk avoidance. Another thing is more practical. It's, 
ensuring that its contractors, whether it's landscapers, snow contractors, security guards, lifeguards, fulfill their duties in a, matter, in a manner that minimizes risk. So what does that mean? Actually having people that are trained. Uh, trained security guard, trained lifeguard, those people need to be coming to the association with proper training and background. Um, also, that they're doing their jobs correctly. So in the sense of a snowplow contractor, are they plowing into people's property? Are they not? Is the association inspecting and keeping an eye on the contractors? Yes, because ultimately what happens is even though there's, there's an indemnity provision or should be an indemnity provision between a contractor and the association, everyone gets sued. So if there's an issue, if there's a, a, a road, a private road in the community and someone gets hit because of ice and snow, everyone's getting sued. Association's getting sued, the snowplow contractor's getting sued, um, the, obviously the people involved in the accident are getting sued, etc. So make sure people are fulfilling their duties. Third thing is making sure the association's properly maintaining the common elements. I know it sounds silly uh, to even say that, but maintenance, if improper maintenance or a lack of maintenance leads to certain risks. So broken and uneven sidewalks, potholes in the road, uh, trees, tree limbs, tree roots, uh, trip hazards. So a lot of these things can be avoided by ordinary regular maintenance and property inspections to be performed by the association, typically by its management company on a regular basis. And then when you're doing the inspections, keep a log and make sure that you follow up with it. Don't do the inspection put the inspection recommendations up on the bookshelf and walk away, follow through with it. Um, finally, enforcing rules and regulations is required in order to avoid risk caused by unit owner violations. And what does that mean? Um, passing rules that would try to eliminate or lessen the risk of association liability caused by unit owner problems or unit owner issues. Uh, and in order to do that, you obviously look at the declaration and the governing documents and pass the rule and then you promote the rule and you distribute it to the unit owners. But the goal is to, again, offset the liability to the association. Most declarations have a provision that if a issue is caused by negligence of a unit owner, then and the association's found liable, the, the unit owner will then uh, also be brought into it and be responsible for it. But the key is to try to avoid it from the beginning. So you mentioned the adoption of rules that might uh, help to limit liability. Can you give a can you give such an example? Absolutely. Uh, one such rule would be related to obstruction of the common elements. And what that means is uh, if someone has a rear deck and then they decide they're going to uh, put some stone patio pavers, for instance, outside the, the uh, boundary of the deck itself, which is typically a limited common element, and then create a trip hazard, then the, first of all, they're not even allowed typically in a condominium setting to put the pavers out there in the common element because it's an obstruction of a general common element of the association. Uh, anyone walking in that area could then trip over it. And the issue is it's a non-compliant use of a common element. 
So by having rules established to tell people that they can't obstruct the common element to begin with leads to trying to avoid the risk. And then if the association is, ends up being brought into a suit, it can say, obviously, here's what the declaration says. However, we also passed a rule. Right. And, this, and this rule was passed in the rulemaking process to make it clear. Okay, that makes sense. One of the coverages that associations are required to carry is directors and officers liability, DNO insurance. What is a DNO liability breach of fiduciary duty claim? So in a nutshell, uh, obviously without talking too much about the insurance itself, the DNO insurance is is to cover claims brought against the association for uh, decisions made by the board, whether someone contests the, the entirety of the decision or they contest a part of it or that they didn't do it properly, etc. So a, a fiduciary duty claim, um, the statutes, the Plan Community Act, the Co-op and the Condo Act all address fiduciary duty of directors and what their obligations are. Uh, so a fiduciary duty claim that's brought by an owner used to be one world. It used to be um, you didn't comply with your fiduciary duty to act in good faith, uh, treat owners equally, and perform your duties reasonably and with sound business judgment. So typically it's, you know, there's no self-dealing. Uh, it's no self-dealing. It's that the, they're acting in the best interest of the association all the time, and that's the standard. What the claims have been over the last probably decade, what I've seen is fiduciary duty claims now encompass everything. Instead of just focusing on money or issues pertaining to spending money, now unit owners and their lawyers are alleging everything is a breach of fiduciary duty. You didn't cut the hedges properly in front of my unit. The one next to me, they're six inches higher or six inches lower. I don't like the way it looks. That's a breach of fiduciary duty. Uh, you hire this landscaper instead of this landscaper. That's a breach of fiduciary duty. So the lawyers have latched onto this concept of breach of fiduciary duty. So what can the associations do to try to minimize this risk? Well, it's again what I said. What the standard was: act in good faith, treat everyone equally, perform your duties reasonably and with sound business judgment. And do that all the time. Do that with every decision you make. The more documentation an association has to substantiate what it's doing properly, the better suited it'll be to defend it if a claim's made. So basically, in our world, have minutes of your decisions. Uh, it's imperative that the key that the associations keep minutes, uh, cor correspondence to and from owners, especially if they're contesting things or or saying the board's not doing something right. Copies of all contracts, accounting statements, audits things that are typically uh, brought up by unit owners. So you have to have the documentation to support what you're doing. And getting back to the insurance that we started with, associations have to have adequate DNO liability insurance uh, coverage in order to best protect the board and the association. So again, the board members and the directors are the ones that are making the decisions. So they're charged with the duty, the fiduciary duty, to act in the best interest of the association. A lot of times they get sued not only as board members, sometimes they get sued outside the scope of their capacity as board members as individuals. And then it's a different it brings a brings an entirely different perspective 
But if they're acting properly and within the scope, ultimately they should have coverage pursuant to the policy. Right. But if someone is do, doing illegal activity, you're never going to have you're coverage. Not going to recover, yeah. Right. So it's common. A lot of it's common sense. Right. But how do you avoid it? Uh, in a nutshell, act properly and in the best interest of the association. It's not a one-man ship. So obviously enforcement uh, is a big part of, I think, what you just explained. So how can enforcement issues lead to a claim or lawsuit? Well, unit owners uh, a lot of times bring claims against the association for selective, and I put that in quotes, or unequal, and that's also in quotes, enforcement. For those in the radio world, I'm, I'm making the qu air quotes right now. And what that means is the unit owners saying the association board is allegedly picking on them and choosing how it wishes to pursue enforcement of covenants or rules and regulations in deciding which owners they want to enforce against, right, um, and which they don't. And the, the allegation a lot of times is they're doing this to punish me because I don't like, they don't like me, right, and I don't like them. I've made it patently obvious I don't like them, but they're doing this enforcement specifically to punish me. Yeah, they personalize it. That's the allegation. Yeah. And the you know, the key here to avoid that kind of allegation is again, act in good faith and it's going to be a mantra, right? Act reasonably and act with sound business judgment. So you have to follow the enforcement procedures that are set forth in the governing documents. And what that means and also the statute by the way, what that means is include proper notice to an owner, have a hearing and appeal requirement in your process or appeal, uh, the ability to appeal. But proper notice is key. Don't fine before you issue notice to be heard. It's backwards. So the statutes both provide an association can fine a unit owner reasonably for violations of its covenants, governing documents and or rules and regulations after notice and a reasonable opportunity to be heard. That's very clear in all, all three of the statutes here in Pennsylvania. Doing it backwards is going to lead to making your enforcement action being fickle because if challenged, you're going to lose on a due process issue. You're going to lose procedurally. So A, treat everyone equally. Even if you have the person that is, I like to say, the pariah in the community, and nobody likes them. Even the neighbors don't like them. Nobody likes them. And then you have the sweet lady down the street who bakes cookies for everybody and brings them to the clubhouse and is literally the nicest person on the planet, but she has the same violation as the pariah and you don't deal with her because she's nice and you go after the, the pariah. Right. It's just going to lead to a problem. You treat everybody the same. Okay. Exactly. And, and you know, some examples of, uh, obvious examples are uh, things you can see. Fence issues, uh, pools, um, you know, landscaping. Things are non-compliant pursuant to covenants. You enforce against one and make them move something or try to make them move something, but you don't against the other. So do it equally. Be consistent. Do right. it uniformly, correct. And, and by the way, um, claims for selective enforcement often concurrently involve fiduciary duty claims and also fair housing or discrimination claims. And we're going to talk about some fair housing issues later on today. But a lot of times these things are all brought at the same time and okay. all intertwined. 
So we, we hear about defamation a lot, I think more frequently these days than maybe we used to. Um, does this actually happen in a community association setting? And, and, and how is how how is defamation? How do you defame someone in a community association setting? So I've defended, I've probably defended five, five to ten over the years. I, I can't even keep track. Uh, lawsuits involving defamation, either entirely being the only issue or one of the ten causes of action that are brought against an association. Uh, and, and how does it happen in an association? Well, it, it can a suit for defamation can arise in an association when a unit owner or even, and by the way, even a board member, because the board member is typically a unit owner, alleges that the association defamed him or her, and it could be libel or slander or both, uh, by communicating about the owner in a manner which has harmed the owner's reputation. Um, and it could either harm the owner's reputation personally or it could harm their reputation commercially in a business sense, depending on what's going on. Right. And in Pennsylvania and a lot of other states, uh, in order for someone to bring an action for defamation, and it, an owner has to prove that there's a defamatory character to the communication. It was published by the association. So it was published outside the scope of just so if it were me and you talking and I said, Tony, um, you don't clean up after your dog and it's just me and you talking, that's not published outside the scope of our conversation. Right. But if the if I put out a notice to 200 people that says Tony doesn't clean up after his dog, that's publication. Is, right? it, is it the same thing if you were at a community association, let's say there's a gathering at the pool one summer afternoon and you announced to the 50 people there that... I don't clean up after my dog. Same thing? Could be, yes. Absolutely. So that, that would just be verbal. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, it has to be defamatory character, has to be published. It has to apply to the owner, meaning obviously it has to be proven that it applies to that person, that the people hearing it understand that it has a defamatory content or meaning. So it has to be, it has to make someone think that's bad, you know, or that that's that person's doing something that they shouldn't be doing, etc. There has to be an understanding of the by the of the person hearing it that it's intended to be uh, that it's intended to be applied to that owner. Meaning, you have to correlate the statement to that person specifically. There has to be actual harm or special harm resulting to the owner from the publication. So you have to prove damages. You can't just say, and this is a lot of times where the claims fizzle out. People say you defamed me because you did this, but they're not able to show that there was any actual harm of right. any kind. Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, there's sometimes something called conditional privilege uh, that may apply in this case, in most cases in an association, conditional privilege uh, wouldn't even be an issue. So again, while a lot of these suits are baseless in law, the association still has to defend the suit, and it's time-consuming and expensive. Typically, they get punted to the DNO carrier, and the DNO carrier has to spend money hiring defense counsel to litigate the issue and um, try to get it dismissed. So, if it's the only thing in the suit, that's it, and you have to deal with that. If there's the other causes of action, fiduciary duty, etc., sometimes we can get the, the defamation cause of action punted early on because there's just simply nothing there. Uh, but again, 
there are issues the association has to contend with. What are some What are some uh, things I've seen over the years that people have alleged uh, are defamatory? Uh, publishing the name of a unit owner whose account is in arrears to all owners by newsletter or posting on a community bulletin board. It used to be the old clubhouse uh, in the community. You'd walk in, they'd, they'd have the list of deadbeats, they'd call it, right? right. The delinquent owners. Right. And they'd put it up on the list because the documents said they could do it. Now in the world of the internet, they put it online. Right. The question is, who can see that? Can you and I see it? that don't live in the community? Can a creditor see it? Can a potential employer see it? Et cetera, right? Uh, publishing the name of a unit owner whose account is in arrears on a website. So again, it's the whole world can see it. Uh, publicly discussing a unit owner's alleged violation of the covenants at an open board meeting prior to issuing a final determination on the issue. An open board meeting meaning other owners are present. Right. So if, I, if, if I'm on the board and I say Tony's not cleaning up after his dog, that's a confidential issue between the board and you. And the owner, right. And the owner, correct. By having that brought out in the open, it then promotes what we discussed before. Everyone else finds out about it, and it shouldn't be happening. But how is the unit owner damaged at the end of the day? Right. That's, that's the, all the elements I discussed are things you have to do. So and, let, me, let me ask you a quick follow-up there. Let's say there's a, you're, with the, you're with the annual meeting, and there's 150 owners present, and the board is present, and let's say they have a public comment period and owner A gets up and accuses owner B of violating some rule that might cause harm in some way. Could that be considered defamation of one owner to the other and could it involve the association? Uh, maybe. So <laughs> I don't want to give you the lawyer answer, but maybe. Um, obviously, if that owner says something about another owner, that's between them. However, if the owner is pointing, the owner who's making the statement is bringing the association into it, um, then it could be an issue for the association. However, the association's response is, thank you, you know, this isn't something we discuss at meetings, um, and that's really where they end it, right. in the open forum. Okay. And obviously, if it's an issue that the association's been made aware of previously or even at the meeting, they probably should investigate it and look into it. Right. Uh, but the def defamatory character of the statement is, again, everything I discussed to even have to prove that. Mm -hmm. That's usually where they fizzle out. Usually they fizzle out on the damages aspect. Right. Um, and a lot of times, before they even get to the damages aspect, they have to, they have to prove that the actual statement was defamatory in nature to begin with. Pay, saying something akin to he doesn't clean up after his dog might not really be defamatory. Right. It could be true and it also could be wrong, but it doesn't mean it's defamatory. Let me ask you about contract disputes. Um, can these kinds of disputes become an issue for the community association to be concerned with? Yeah, absolutely. So typically the contract disputes are going to be with contractors or vendors uh, with whom the association contracts. When there's an issue, the contractors bring a claim against the association for breach of contract. So more often than not, the association believes that the contractor hasn't, quote, performed under the contract. So the association stops paying or says, don't come back. You ruined our pond or you didn't pave this correctly. We don't want you to proceed and do the rest because this looks like a fifth grader did it. 
So we're cutting our losses and we're stopping you now before you ruin everything in the community. That's a, a simple example. Another one is that they have overcharged. So the snow contract is flat fee. I've litigated, I don't know how many snow contract disputes over the years, you know, both suing contractors and being defendant or counterclaims against each uh, because the association believes that the contract said $3,000 a month and these things would be extra, but every month they're getting charged $10,000 a month because they're $7,000 in extras. And the allegation, or rather the theory is, the contractor just did took the job for three, knowing it would be more, but then tacking on the rest. But then they have to substantiate what the extras were and right. why it costs more. So that's another, that's a, a simple example of what can occur on a contract basis. Um, so the association withholds payment a lot of times, causes the vendor to sue the association for breach. Right. Uh, concurrently, sometimes the association sues the contractor for breach. That's a different issue. That's not avoiding risk. But how do you avoid risk in contractual suits? Um, act reasonably in how you approach the contract dispute, right? So rather than simply withholding the payment for the alleged breach, uh, which will probably cause the situation to escalate, the association should first communicate with the vendor or contractor to try to amicably resolve it. Uh, how, did, how do they do that? Well, you can negotiate or resolve it. Uh, in a way that's beneficial to both parties, um, maybe cutting your losses and each party, the contractor knowing he's not going to get paid in full, and the association knows that those contractors some money, uh, trying to resolve it to eliminate the cost, energy, and time it would take to litigate a contract dispute. And by the way, the contractor may have incentive to want to stay on the property and continue working there. Right. Sometimes it's a one-off and it blows up and then it goes away. Other times the relationships are just simply not, it's, it's, it's not feasible to uh, resolve it and save the relationship. And then at that point, uh, it's already typically in my hands and I'm trying to seek a split between the two parties in some way. You know, each party goes its separate ways right. and signs a one-page release to do that rather than litigating it for two years. So, the, you know, contract issues are, are, I mean, weekly for me. I mean, I see contract issues arise weekly. So it's, it's a big issue. And um, how another thing to consider in contract issues is the contract itself. Associations a lot of times sign a contract handed to them by the contractor and it's one-sided, it's lopsided. I don't get to review it, they sign it. Um, the end result is it's all geared towards the contract. It's written agreement, right? right? There are some arguments you can make about it being unconscionable, et cetera, but it's a contract, it's a contract, it's a contract, both parties signed it. So a lot of times they don't have indemnity provisions in them to protect the association, duty, uh, duties that the contractor would have to fulfill, et cetera. They're just literally one or two pages, and the only boilerplate that's in there is to protect the contractor. Right. So we advise our clients to let us review all contracts. A lot of times we actually will write a contract and then attach the contractor's uh, specs as an exhibit and say that our contract controls, if there's any conflict between the two, our contract controls. And doing that up front eliminates or at least lessens the likelihood of problems occurring later on with okay. the contract. 
Uh, earlier you mentioned fair housing claims uh, and the issues that they can raise for communities. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. So fair housing issues stem out of the Civil Rights Act, and I, I won't get too technical here, but uh, Title VIII of the Civil Rights Act of 1968 is actually called the Fair Housing Act or FHA. Different FHA than the financing people, that's the Federal Housing Administration. Uh, this is the Fair Housing Act. And it was amended in 1974, and it was also amended in 1988. So up to 74, it made it illegal to threaten, coerce, intimidate, or interfere with someone who's exercising a fair housing right or assisting others who exercise that right or advertise or make statements which indicate a limitation or preference based on a protected class. And those classes back then were race, color, national origin, religion, and sex slash gender. Uh, in 88, they, it was amended, and it's called the FHAA. It's like alphabet soup, uh, federal alphabet soup, I call it. So the FHAA, the Fair Housing Amendments Act of 1988, added two more protected classes, familial status and individuals with disabilities. And everyone in, in the association world knows familial status is something that was a growing, is a growing phenomenon. And um, disabilities, that's the number one. So disabilities right now, that's the number one issue that's being raised as a result of fair housing allegations of discrimination. Uh, why does it apply to associations? Because the associations provide services and facilities to owners. Um, HUD has interpreted FHA to involve two types, uh, disparate or disparate treatment and disparate or disparate impact. So treatment involves overt discrimination, treating someone differently because of race, color, sex, gender, national origin, disability, etc. The impact claims involved discrimination by a different impact. And that what that means is you pass a policy and or you have a policy or procedure or a rule and that is supposed to be a neutral policy, but the neutral policy affects people of a protected class disproportionately more than it would a unprotected class. Um, those claims are increasing in nature and I see that's where this is all gonna go. So religious examples of religious discrimination, um, having people be able to put religious articles out or, or things on the front door, these are things which only impact that, that, that group of people. Uh, religion is not one of the protected classes, right? But I see it, the worlds are converging right now. Right. So they've been increasing, the, these claims have been increasing steadily. Uh, the most common are for disability claims. We'll go back to that failure to provide a reasonable accommodation, and that's service animals, right? Uh, emotional support animals, companion animals, and parking issues. Parking and pets are two of the things. Um, the other thing is reasonable modification. That's the actual structure issue. A ramp, a stair lift, a chair lift in a swimming pool. These are all things I've dealt with. So those are things that the associations probably see more often than any other. And the third probably most frequent one is familial status violations. Uh, swim times, adult swim in pool, uh, not allowing children to play on common elements things that treat, the allegation is you're treating families with children or 
residents with children differently than others, and you're penalizing or you're being punitive in nature to those in violation of the Fair Housing Act, as opposed to how you're treating everyone else. So in order to avoid those claims and litigation, and by the way, this litigation goes on for a long time because it's usually, it's either typically brought up front at the HUD level by filing a complaint and or PHRC, the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission in Pennsylvania, they can be filed concurrently. Sometimes PHRC takes it over for HUD because HUD is overloaded. Uh, sometimes HUD takes it, or you can file in federal court. And if it's in federal court, it's in federal court. So it's, these things take a while. So associations should be educated on the law, act reasonably when making determinations. So if someone requests a reasonable accommodation or a modification, instead of summarily saying no and turning it down, think about it. Reach out to your lawyer and say, hey, this person came to us. What do you think of this request and what should we do under the law? Uh, don't do it backwards. So act properly, look at it, investigate it, review it. Um, don't just ignore it because the courts have held ignoring a request for a reasonable modification or accommodation is akin to discrimination. It's basically delaying them in an effort to have them not even have the thing there, the right. request. Right. Uh, don't just bury it. You have to deal with it. And issue that determination in a timely manner. Same thing. So delaying and delaying and delaying is also has been held to be discriminatory. It's going to get you in trouble. Well, they're saying that the, the only purpose of the delay is to discriminate. Right. Because otherwise, just come up with a yes or no and right. let them carry on. So we've talked about, uh, we've talked a lot about lawsuits and litigation. Um, what alternatives are there to litigation? What communities, what can communities do to avoid litigation or what, what are the alternatives? So at the end of the day, um, we talked a lot about risk avoidance here and some of the practical and legal and procedural things associations can do to try to eliminate the risk of a claim being brought or a lawsuit being brought against them. But invariably, it's going to happen, right? So what, what can you do uh, when something occurs or when claims are brought? Uh, ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution. And, and you know, I know... Uh, serving on the LAC and working with you and, and the LAC on the ADR amendments, uh, House Bill 595 uh, or Act 17 of 2018, we, we call it the ADR amendments. Um, the legislature saw the need for some sort of tool to address association disputes between owners and associations or owners and owners. Uh, Alternative dispute resolution is a process that can be non-binding or binding in nature. Uh, it, can be, it can be mediation, it can be arbitration. Um, in mediation, it's typically a sole mediator. It's typically non-binding, but it could be upon agreement of the parties. Um, I mean, obviously the statutes provide what they provide for and that bylaws can be amended for, for older communities and new communities have to have ADR provisions in the bylaws, et cetera. But I'm talking from a general sense here. A lot of times, if you, if things do blow up, an option here would be to go to ADR, communicate with each other, say we'll split the cost, um, and go to a mediation if there's no other option. And if, especially if a suit's already been brought, this may resolve it in two months as opposed to two years. Two years, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> so um, it's a lot less expensive 
for the parties to engage in mediation uh, and it keeps you out of court and if, it, if a suit hasn't been brought yet and even if a suit has been brought it may lead to resolution and then the suit gets dismissed but I I've been doing defense litigation for a very long time 50, probably 15 years now on behalf of associations and I've done a lot of mediations on behalf of associations uh, countless for every possible issue, whether it's a death case involving uh, a tree that fell on someone's car while they were in it driving through an association uh, or any other kind of personal injury claim or a DNO claim. And depending on the party's willingness to try to get it resolved, it could work. So one, one final question, Ed. Uh, what should we know about insurance to try and cover all these different kinds of claims that you've been discussing with us? So insurance, uh, we talked a little bit about DNO claims and DNO insurance. So obviously you have to make sure that you have the proper policies and the proper coverages. Uh, some bylaws and some declarations, or sometimes both, include, actually specifically enumerate the types of coverage an association has to have. So you should look at directors and lawyers and everyone involved, especially insurance agents a lot of times. Um, I've pointed out to insurance agents or brokers that don't specialize in association coverage. This is what they're actually required to have and I show them Article 8 of the declaration. Here it is. They say we were unaware of that. Uh, so this gets back to know, have people on your team that know what they're doing. Uh, people, association agents or, bro or brokers or insurance agents specialize in, in a community association. Uh, will know this stuff to begin with. So you have to have coverage uh, for events which in involve associations. Uh, GL, what I've seen on that side is people that do the insurance and don't know what they're doing, sometimes portions of the common elements aren't even covered. That could be a problem. That's a big problem, especially when there's a lawsuit involving the common element or something that occurred on the common element, right? Um, so you have to have GL insurance. DO, DNO, self-explanatory claims against boards and, and associations, uh, director and officer liability for decisions that are made. Okay. Other things, uh, obviously property for the property claims, workers comp, fidelity insurance or bonds, etc. Uh, there's a whole myriad of things that someone who knows what they're doing in this world is able to tell an association uh, what coverages exist. And then at the end of the day, hopefully the, the whole purpose of insurance, by the way, is getting back to square one to minimize or offset the risk, right? So even if there is an issue, it, it will, the purpose of the insurance is to offset the risk to the association of paying out on it. Well, Ed, there's a lot of information here uh, for our listeners and, and uh, should help our listeners with these issues. I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, if you'd like more information on services provided by the law firm Barrow Hoffman, please visit them online at www.barrowhoffman.com. I'd also like to mention our sponsor one more time, FWH Associates Engineers. Find them online at www.fwhassociates.com. For more resources and best practices on managing and governing your condominium, cooperative, or homeowners association, please contact CAI or visit our website at www.cai-padelval.org. Thank you for listening.